Our scripture this morning is Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He, him will he instruct in the way that he should, that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins." Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. He can be seated. Well, again, good morning and uh, welcome. We're glad you're here today. Uh, my name is Nathan. Uh, why don't we pray together as we look at this ancient psalm. God, we come uh, this morning needing to hear from you. God, needing, uh, longing uh, to experience um, even just the tiniest bit of who you are. God, I, I pray that as all of us come from so many different situations, some, um, some excited and overjoyed by the season, others weighed down or distracted, um, others filled with, with doubts or, or cynicism. God, I, I pray that regardless of, of how we come and who we are, that you would show us your love. And God, help us to know that that love is not just a theory, but it's for us, each and every one of us. God, we long to experience that, to know that through Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's really just one sort of transcendent thing left in a society like ours. Hey, transcendent, like an experience of, of the other, something that, that leads us to awe or, um, you know, outside of ourselves, a, a glimpse of the divine, something, something like that. It's really, I mean, if, if God is sort of, sort of pushed off to the margins in most everyday life, there's really just one thing left for transcendence. It's, it's love, right? Human love with one another. In fact, Brene Brown, she writes, love will never be certain, but I'm willing to call this a fact. A deep sense of love and belonging is an irreducible need of all men, women, and children. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong. 
And yet, because it's, I mean, I absolutely agree, but like, because it's sort of this, this, you know, final frontier of transcendent experience, we've also kind of made it the, the only kind of religion that we have left, right? I mean, this is why you can't tell somebody who they can and cannot love, right? It's why we, we oftentimes will move from partner to partner. It's why uh, divorce and pornography uh, run rampant. It's why we, you know, honestly, it's why we put so much pressure on our kids, or even on our, on our closest friends, it's because we are in search of the transcendent, like the last vestige of an experience outside ourselves. And, and of course we are, right? Love, I mean, I love love. We all do. It is transcendent. We need it, and we humans will not flourish without it. But there's a problem, because we also know how fleeting it is, don't we? How problematic human loves are with one another. How they don't always work out like you want them to, or, or even just the complexities of any, any human relationship, right? I mean, like, it's the people that we love the most who hurt us the most, isn't it? I mean, when's the last time you've been disappointed by somebody you care about? Like this morning on the way to church, right? Or abandoned, ignored, betrayed, let down, abused, you name it. And there's something unique about the way we, kind, we feel that during the holidays, isn't there? I mean, the holidays remind us both of the possibility and the futility of human love. You, you can't escape it. And so for some, of, for some of us here, like everything rides on these next two weeks because you have to experience all of it. So all the gifts have to be perfect and all the meals and the, the parties and all the kids and everything's, everything's got to get, get along. And it's just going to, because you want to feel it, right? You want to experience it. And of course you do. Other, others of us, we've given up on that long ago, right? And you're just sort of bracing yourself for the train wreck you know it's going to be. The holidays remind us of the futility and the possibility of love. And even, I mean, let's just say, like, even if you are granted the very best of human love, look, what if that actually happens? Now, I... I Genuinely, I believe I married the most incredible person on the planet. Like, I mean that. It's not about, I, I said it with her in the room at 8 o'clock, all right? I don't know if I'd actually ever say it to her face. But, uh, I mean, I believe, like, she walks on water. I, that's a joke, by the way. I mean, I, but I adore her. I have the very best of human love in her. But you know what? One day in the future, not that far off, Either she's going to put me in the ground or I'm going to put her in the ground. One of us is going to bury the other. Now, if you know Kelly and me, you know that I'm bound to go first. So um, <laughs> there's, there's a little relief on that end. Um, but like we, we just, we know how, how frail and futile and fleeting it all is. And, and so then we, we take all this this longing for transcendence through human love and experience. We take all of our disappointment and, and the frustrations that we've had with it. And I can't help but wonder, like, does God play by the same lousy rules as everybody else? Is his love going to be the same? Is it going to be the same, same kinds of a possibility for disappointment? Is it going to end? Is he going to let me down? Is he, he going to forget about me or abandon me? Is God's love really worth depending on? Well, thankfully, we're not the first to ask that question. Even King David wrestled with it. 
even as he wrote this, this psalm down, I mean, after decades for David of trusting God with his life, year in and year out, even he wondered, can, can God really love me? Can his love really, really be counted on? Now, this, this Advent season, we're working through a handful of, of psalms, right? These ancient songs, you know, written so, so long ago. And, and we picked four of them for kind of the, the traditional themes of Advent, right? Of, of hope and peace and, and love and, and joy next week. But the psalms are messy, because right? faith is messy. Life is messy. And so, yeah, this morning, I mean, we heard it read. We're in Psalm 25, a song of love, right? And it's like, oh, that's cute, isn't it? I mean, kind of throw up in your mouth. But it's like, I mean, that's kind of what we think of when we hear that. But it's, let me tell you, it is not warm and fuzzy for David. Like with, with David, with, with David's anguish and questioning in this psalm, it's as real as anything you and I ever experience. And as, as David writes this, this song. He writes it and he begins metaphorically like in the valley of trouble, a place of deep darkness. And then it's sort of like he, he climbs up just for a moment to, to the mountains to, to glimpse God's love. He just wants to see it, wants to experience the tiniest bit of it. But then he ends back waiting in the valley. That's life, isn't it? Often, that's faith. Faith doesn't just magically fix everything. This is the normal experience of the faithful. The question isn't, will you doubt God's love? Or will you have to deal with disappointment? That's not the question. The question is, when you do, will you keep trusting him anyway? Will you believe that his love is still worth depending on? So here's the valley. Here's where he starts. God's love will include trouble. God's love will include trouble. Not, not might or could, will. Like all loves in a broken world. And so look at, look at verse one as, as David begins. He says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. And let's stop there for a second because like before I really read the Psalms or really before I experienced a whole lot of life, I kind of used to think that like the Psalms were sort of the precious moments of the Bible, right? Just these sentimental, cliched, you know, chicken soup for the soul kind of thing, right? Just to make you feel warm. But then, but then you actually like read them after you've lived a little bit of life and you know the heartache that life is, you know how brutal the world can be, you know that faith is not just a magic wand to fix everything, and you quickly realize that you, me, and the psalmist are not that different. What David's going through here, like this is worse than anything I've experienced, and, and you, can, you can feel his anguish and his desperation as he, as he writes this out. I mean, this is, this is David, the king, the warrior, right, who killed a bear or a lion with his, with his hands, right, his bare hands, who, who defeated armies, David. I mean, we, I think we, some of us probably picture David more like with a harp and a bunch of cuddly sheep frolicking around, right, which is true. I mean, that's part of his story, but this is, this is later on in his life. Picture him with calloused hands and blood on his face, 
Like this is after he's mounted Goliath's head to his fireplace, right? I mean, not, not really, maybe. Um, but I mean, this is David, a warrior, strong and powerful. And he has seen God come through for him over and over and over again. And yet at the end of the song, we feel what he's feeling. Look at verse 16. He says, turn to me. Like, look at me. I mean, that's what, look at me. God, and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction. Like, pay, like just notice it, God, and my trouble. And forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. So, so picture him like surrounded by, by more enemies than he can possibly count, and yet he's never felt more alone. His friends have abandoned him. God feels absent. And, and he can't help but wonder if, if it's his fault, like the sense of the shame that he has. His heart is about to burst. He feels like an animal caught in a net while God watches. Do something. Look at me. Like, act. God, would you respond? Prove that I can depend on you. I mean, these are the moments, aren't they? These are the moments that we question his love. When we wonder, God, we know you can intervene. Why don't you? Why does it have to be like this? It's one of the biggest obstacles to faith, isn't it? Right? If God is so good, why are things so bad? Why is my experience sometimes so lousy? You know, the Bible never really fully answers that question. I mean, it gives us some clues, right? That we rebelled against God and everything broke, right? We live in a fallen, broken world and so terrible things happen. But I don't know about you, but I still have a whole lot more questions than that, right? And we don't get those answers. And yet I can tell you that I, I love the fact that at the very least, the Bible never minimizes that. God never hides from the questions, the doubts. In fact, he actually gives us the Psalms to show us how to wrestle with them. If, if you want to know how to express your anger to God, your fear, your, your doubts, your disappointment, like God not, not only gives us permission to lament, but he arms us with the words to express those feelings to him. I mean, no other faith does that. No, no other faith, the religious text, is as honest, brutally honest as the Psalms. You don't have to keep it bottled up. Like whatever it is, you don't, you don't have to keep, like God's love will include trouble. So are you crying out? Take your complaints to him. I'm not talking about complaining about God, but complaining to God. There's a big difference, right? We're really good at one, not quite as good at the other. But we can take our complaints to him like David does. Because isn't it amazing, like in the midst of all David is dealing with, like he sits down and writes a poem. Like, like in, the, in the midst of all, all that he's experiencing, all the, the pain, like in the fear, and he, he takes the time to write this song. It's actually an acrostic. We missed that in our, our translation. So that means like, you know, the first line matches up with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the second line, the second letter of the, like on and on through the, the Hebrew alphabet. I mean, David, he like puts some effort into this, Right? 
He spent work on it. And many, many scholars would say that like part of the reason that they would use an acrostic, like pen and paper weren't exactly handy, is to be memorized. For him to memorize it, for, for God's people who understood Hebrew to memorize it. Because David knew like crying out to God, that's a normal part of the experience we have. We have a lot to cry out for, are we? Don't complain about God, complain to him. And then the, the crying out. <laughs> in the crying out, something else becomes evident to David. Because even, even in his agony, right, in the valley, David sort of begins to, to climb this mountain to get a glimpse of God's love. He knows it's there, right? He wants to see it. He wants to experience, experience it. And so it's almost like he sticks his head out of the cave. Because yes, God's love will include trouble, trouble, but David also knows that God's love will not put us to shame. God's love will not put us to shame. I mean, it's so interesting to me, like both at the beginning of this song as well as at the end, it's really the same request. The primary thing that David is asking God to do, it's not just save me, like I'd like to live a little longer. He says, let me not be put to shame. Let me not be put to shame. And there, there are two sides to shame. Uh, the, the first side of shame that David is talking about here is clearly, it's just flat out disappointment. Like, I'm trusting in you. Don't let me, don't, don't let me come up empty handed in that. Like, if I go through this tunnel, will you be there at the end, God? I mean, it's, don't, don't let me be like the, the jilted lover uh, left at the altar on, on the wedding day. So that's the kind of shame. I don't, I don't want to expect kids. It's, it's sort of like, um, it's the feeling that when you're the last kid to be picked up and you know it's because they forgot, right? That's, that's what David is talking about. That, that ache of, I, I thought you were better than this. But then there, there's another side of this shame. In fact, it comes out over and over again throughout this psalm. The other side is, yeah, is it my fault? Like, have my sins put me in this place? I mean, the only thing worse than suffering is the suffering that comes with shame, right? This nagging sense that maybe, maybe I, I'm my problem. Maybe I'm the reason there's so much heartache around me and within me of wondering if you brought it on yourself. So David, he cries out multiple times throughout this psalm. But verse six in particular, these are the verses we're memorizing this week. If you grab that card, we have more of them. But we're memorizing little pieces of these songs together. But verse six, these are the ones we're memorizing for this week. David cries out, he says, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or the transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O oh Lord. We doubt God's love in our trouble and we doubt it in our shame. And those two things working together spiral us deeper and deeper and deeper into an ugly place, don't they? To the point of like, how could he love somebody like me? I mean, he sees inside me. He sees every action and every inaction, like the things we should have done but didn't. And every attitude and all the motivations behind all of it. He sees all of it. Please don't remember my sins. 
especially not the sins of my youth, he says. That's, that line just, that, I mean, I've prayed that in my own life. I'm sure many of us have, but like kids, students, if you're younger here, like just like take note of that, that David, even decades later, is, is saying, God, would you please forget the junk I did when I was younger? Like just because you're young doesn't mean you like you get a pass, like that you're not going to carry things that you do, decisions that you make for the rest of your life. And there have been plenty of times when I cry out, God, would you, would you please just please forget the stupid stuff I did when I was young? And while we're on the subject, would you forget the stupid stuff I did last week, right? And yesterday? I mean, part of the reason you and I question God's love is because we, again, we, we wonder if he's like us. We can't keep the end of our bargain. Like, we know we're a mess. We know we're inconsistent. And we can't help but wonder, how could God love me? And could he be like that, as inconsistent and fickle as I am? And so what does David appeal to here? He says, don't let me be ashamed because I'll do better next time. Yeah, come on, right? Or, or, or forgive, forgive my sins because, I mean, they weren't that bad, right? Or that person's worse. No, David doesn't go there at all. He says, do it, God, because that's who you are because you're a God who does those things. And so, God, would you remember your mercy? It's not like God forgot, it's like act according to these characters that, that I know are, are part of who you are. Remember your mercy. Remember your steadfast love. Remember your promise. And, and not for my sake. I love that David says it. It's like, he's not even saying like, because, you know, I'm, your, I'm the king, right? Of, of your people. And we have this thing going and I've written all these thoughts. No, he's like, would you do it for your sake? Do it to, to show me and to show everyone else how good and glorious and merciful you are. He's banking on God's love. First on God's, his mercy or his compassion, depending on your translation. In Hebrew, it's the word rachamim, which is like the tender or familial love of God. It's sort of the, the, the love that a, a mother has for her child. So he says, yeah, remember that kind of love for me, would you, God? And then he spends the, the most time, the most words using this, this word uh, hesed, it's translated in most of our Bibles as steadfast love. It's his, his loyal love. It's a love that, that never ceases, never ends. In fact, um, my favorite children's Bible sums it up like this, that, that God's love is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's, that's hesed. That, that's the idea of, of steadfast love that's used over and over in, in this psalm. And I think one of the reasons love disappoints us today is because we just have such a shallow definition of it. Like we don't, when we say I love you, we don't think those like that to somebody. Like even if you just like turn on the TV and, and watch like the, the average wedding vows on television, you know, in some sitcom or show or movie, you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, I, I watch those and honestly, I, afterwards, I almost feel like I have to take a shower, right? Because they're just so self-centered and narcissistic. Like, it's all about, I mean, listen to it. Like, it's, well, you make me feel like this, and then I feel like this, and you make me, you do this for me. It's like, like, make a promise for crying out loud, right? I mean, they're devoid of any real commitment. That's not love. And if that's our definition of love, then of course we wonder if God's going to change, right? Because our feelings change. Is it going to be conditional, like the way we approach everybody else in our lives? Or is it going to be covenantal? Real love is a promise, not a, not a feeling, not emotion. Those things are a part of it, but that's, it's, a, it's a commitment. 
And so when God says he loves his people, it is a promise and God never breaks his promises. You see, for example, there's this really, really, really bizarre story um, in Genesis. I think it's part of what David is looking back on when he says remember, or he talks about this covenant um, in this psalm, like this covenant that God made. And in and, and, and Genesis 15, it's weird, forgive me ahead of time, uh, but like God makes a, a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham is, is David's, you know, great, 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 et cetera, grandfather, right? And so the promises that, that God makes to Abraham are for David, and really because of Christ, they're for all of God's people. And, and God enters this covenant to, to be their God, to be faithful and loyal and loving to his people. And God enters this covenant in the way that was just common for their culture. I mean, this was like a long, long time ago. Um, they, they, they entered, they had contracts a little bit differently than, than we do, okay? So it's bizarre for us, but for them, this is just normal. So, so God, he tells Abraham, would you, uh, Abraham, go get a cow, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. Not a petting zoo, for those of you who are wondering, um, but cut them in half and then make a walkway between them, Right? It's gross, huh? Some of you are like, the Bible is actually more interesting than I thought. Um, this is, I mean, that's just how contracts were entered into in the ancient Near East during that, during that time period. And, and so you'd, you'd separate the, the severed animals. And so you'd have a, you know, a cow on one side, or half a cow and a half a cow and half a goat and half a goat. And, and, and then you'd, you'd walk through the center. And like, we're talking a lot of blood here, right? I mean, can you just like imagine if that's how we did contracts today? Like imagine going to a wedding like that, you know? Lovely carcass arrangements, dear. Um, <laughs> But by, by, walking, by walking through, each person would be saying to the other in the, in the contract, so both parties would walk through, and they'd be saying, if I don't fulfill my word, may this happen to me. Like, if I, if I don't keep my promise, my end of this deal, whatever this deal is, then my, bodies, my body should look like this when we're done here. They kind of took their promises a little seriously back then. And God's end of the deal was to fulfill his love for all eternity to his people and Abraham's into the deal and David's and all God's people's sense is to walk with faith before him. So Abraham, he does what he's told. He slaughters the animals. He separates them. And then he falls asleep. And part of me is like, dude, Abraham, like God is making a deal with you. Like wake up. But that's, that's actually part of, part of the beauty. And, and, and God takes this opportunity to walk through alone. That God, God, like this, kind of this, this smoking fire pot, this symbol, this image of God. I mean, it's like this weird vision. Read it later. Uh, but it's, but God, God walks through by himself. And what, what God is doing, that the God of the universe, the God who made us, he's entering into this promise saying, if I don't fulfill my love to you, may I die. If I don't fulfill these things to you, if you don't know and understand and experience my love, then you can count me as good as dead. Let me be torn apart if I am unfaithful to my promises. I mean, what kind of God says that? Like that our God enters into that kind of contract, covenant with his people, but it's not, it's not just, I mean, that's, that's amazing enough, but it's, it's better than that because Abraham never walks through. And so, and so really what's happening there is, is God is, is going through for us as well, he's saying, even if you fail, let me be torn apart. Even if you can't keep the end of your deal, which, I mean, let's be honest, guys. He, like, he, he knows. Like, even so, I'm not leaving. Even when you fail, even when your sin and shame overcomes you, let me be torn apart. Let me be killed 
which is exactly what happened on the cross. I mean, that's, that's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we continue to gather week in and week out. This is our story, people. This is our God, the one who makes promises. He keeps his promises. We don't. So he comes. His life torn apart on the cross for our sin and for our shame. We fail the covenant and he takes the blame. This is what David is looking back on. And so these promises that David cries out for in verses 11, 15, not only, not only are, they, are they his and David knows that God will come through for them. He doesn't know how, but he knows that he will. They're also promises for us in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being. Think about how, I mean, David is in the pit saying that. Even, even, even so, that person's soul will abide in well-being and flourishing. And his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. His eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. And so friends, if you're, if you're with him, you will not be put to shame. Ever. And he makes that promise with his own life and death. And so when you cry out, because you will, I mean, whether you cry out to God, that's up to you. But we all cry out for something more for, in those moments of pain and heartache. If you're crying out to God, what are you appealing to? Like on what basis are you saying, God, help? God, have mercy. God, remember compassion. On what basis? What are you appealing to? Don't appeal to your good works. They're just not that impressive, right? Like God, God looks at you like, you know, the things you've done. He's like, wow, yeah, well done, Right? They're not that impressive or, or how, how nice you think you are, right? It's, well, I mean, you're not, right? You hurt people. I hurt people, even the people I care about the most. We can't appeal to those things. Don't hope for some fleeting and fickle emotion. Appeal to his love, his character. And when you doubt it because you will, you've got to remember his promise. Remember Abraham. Remember David. Remember the cross that God has already proven his love for you on the cross, written with his own blood. It's worth depending on. Oh, I wish David ended there. It'd be a little bit easier, nicer, just to end on that high point. The view from the mountain is so beautiful. That's not where David's at right now. David's still in the valley. I'm pretty sure he's writing this in perspective. He doesn't know how it's going to end for him, not, not specifically. He's still in a place of heartache and pain, which is just life, isn't it? Like, you, you may not like the Bible, some of you, um, but at least it's existentially honest, right? This, is, this feels like life. The pain and the heart, it doesn't gloss it over and make it all pretty for us. For God's love, God's love will make us wait. That's the last thing. It will make us wait. And we hate waiting. We've always hated waiting. We're terrible at waiting, especially in an instant society like ours. We're just lousy waiters. And yet, I mean, with anything that actually matters in life, it's just inevitable. It's just, it's just part of it. In a broken reality, of course we wait. And so verse 20, this is how the song ends for David. 
He says, oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, oh God, out of all his troubles. That's it. That's the end. There's no way around it. We wait for God's love. I'm sure you can experience it in the midst of trouble. Yeah, of course. You can experience it in the release from our shame, of course. By faith, we can experience God's love even now, even today, but we're still waiting, aren't we? I mean, like, like David, we want to be free of it all. We want to be out of the valley and out of the mess, right? We want his love brought near. We want to experience it and feel it and see it in every way. We want him to rescue us now, but we wait. And, and David... Like, he doesn't deny that. He doesn't even really fight against it in this psalm. Instead, over and over again, he asks God to help him wait well. I mean, did you notice that in there? Uh, here, for example, this is sprinkled all throughout, but let me read verse four. Like, in the midst of the waiting, he says, in the midst of the enemies surrounding me, in the midst of my impending doom, right, and shame, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. And he's talking about obedience. Like, if you want to know what, what to do while you're waiting, like, obey. Like, do what he told you, right? It's, it's not that profound. And, I mean, it's, it's sprinkled throughout this entire psalm. That's how we wait. That's how we respond to God's love. It's with obedience, I've heard one pastor uh, suggest um, that if you're, you know, if God just feels distant from you or, or his love has grown cold, he just makes a simple suggestion of, of take one of the commands that you know you're lousy at and just obey it for a while and just like see what happens. And if you don't know which ones you're lousy at, just like ask the person sitting next to you, right? Um, <laughs> they know which ones, right? Life is full of waiting, and in the meantime, we obey. I love what Oswald Chambers writes. He says, waiting is not sitting with folded hands doing nothing, but it is learning to do what we are told. Which sort of makes me wonder if that's why we wait so long and so often, right? We're slow learners. So is, is God's love worth depending on? I mean, I think so, right? He promises that it, with it, we will not be put to shame, even in our trouble, even in our waiting. But I realize for some of you, you're, you're still sitting there rest, like asking, but why the trouble? Why the waiting in the first place? I don't know. I wish I had a better answer, but I, I don't know. I want to ask God the same. But I, I am struck by these words of, of Dorothy Sayers. I love what she writes. She says, For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. 
He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. So the love of God may not deliver us from the valleys, and yet at least we know that he, he knows what it's like to live in the valley. Like what other, what other God can say that? that? That Jesus, he actually knows what it's like to be surrounded by his enemies, by people bent on his destruction, who mocking him and, and longing to, he knows what it's like to, to lose a friend, like to have one die before him. He knows what it's, what it's like to be abandoned and betrayed by the people that he, he came to love and care for, right? The people closest to him, they all left him. And then his hardest night as he faced the cross. He even knows what it's like to pray and to wait and to hear nothing but silence from heaven. He was born in trouble and he died in trouble. He knows your heartache. And he, not just from like seeing it from on high, like looking down, like, yes, God knows, but God, he came. He put on skin and bones so that he could feel your trouble. And he went to the cross so that eventually, ultimately, he could rescue us from our trouble. And so we wait, not just for relief, not just for comfort, but for his return. Love came near in a manger and it will come near again. You and I, we will not wait forever. And so that you can know, whatever it is you're experiencing, whatever areas of doubt or frustration or disappointment or, or anxiety, whatever, whatever it is that you feel in this, this moment or will feel at some point, you can know that, that because of his life, death, and resurrection, because of his promise, and this God always fulfills his promise, you can know, friends, that he loves you and his love will not put you to shame. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you that we, um, that, that even though I don't have all the answers I want so badly, and so many things I don't understand, especially in, in those hardest moments of life, Lord Jesus, I am so thankful that you, that you understand that you've experienced it. You know both the beauties and the joys of life on earth as well as the, the deepest pains. And that even though when I look at those things, I often feel um, afraid or despair, that you look at them and you, you take up a cross to <laughs> rescue us from our sin and our shame and from all that is broken. All, all the mess, messes that we make and the messes that we are in simply because of the messy people around us. And so Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see you in the trouble. God, to release all of our shame to you and know that you have borne the weight of all of it. And God, that through faith we would wait well. That we do what we're told and that we do it with joy because we know the God it is we're serving. So, Lord Jesus, we celebrate you now. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray.